Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Susan McKinnon, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon from St. Louis, Missouri, who gave the Olga Jonasson Lecture at Clinical Congress 2023. In her lecture, Phoenix Rising, The Culture of Surgery, A Paradigm Shift, Dr. McKinnon discusses the concept of energy leadership, a seven-level strategy that can transform how an individual interacts with and ultimately leads teams. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. So this is an unusual situation for me to be talking about this. I talk about nerve. I do not talk about this kind of thing. And I do not talk about this kind of thing at the American College of Surgeons. So I'm really still perplexed as to what is it that has brought me here to this space to give this talk. This is an article written about well-being of physicians. It was written around 2018. It's a white paper. And the senior author is Colin West from Mayo, very much a part of the well-being Mayo index that we all take. It starts out by saying that the contract that physicians have with society is to look after patients. That's why we go into that. And then suggest that this two-page white paper could be used as um, a charter to help with determining the um, interventions that could help us meet that commitment. But it also says this, that individual physicians, especially those in leadership or educational roles, could practice and role model self-compassion and vulnerability. And so I am doing that today. I am very, putting myself in a very vulnerable position. I'm speaking for others. I've said to myself, well, if not you, Susan, now, then who, when? Who should do this? Who should stand up and say, we're ready. We're ready for a change in the culture of surgery. Are any of you in the audience ready for a change in the culture of surgery? Okay, wow, didn't expect that. Didn't think I'd ask that either. So here we go. This has been carefully vetted by Dr. Alec Patterson. We all understand that there are many unsolved problems in American healthcare and academic medicine. The top-down hierarchy structure of most academic departments can be an impediment to productivity, innovation, and professional satisfaction. Such environments can be a strong negative stimulus for the very elements that define academic productivity. I have experienced such negative environments in several stages of my 40-year career. In the latter years of my tenure as a division chief, I found myself in an environment that I personally perceived. It was my perception that I was working in an environment of bullying and harassment. 
I was told I was a burden to my colleagues and should work on my tarnished reputation. This was a challenging time as I began to question my abilities, career satisfaction, future as an academic leader. It had negative implications on my personal life, my family relations, and my overall health. My daughter, the orthopedic hand surgeon, when she first saw me, after this started, confronted me and challenged me, where's your joy gone, mom? Get your joy back. That broke my heart. I'm compelled to ask you if any of you had felt that same experience as a surgeon of sadness and despair in your professional life. One, two, three, most. This state was absolutely foreign to me. Rather than retiring or accepting the situation, I decided to study it and to examine myself. And at my suggestion and with the agreement of my institution, I engaged in professional coaching arrangement. My coaches were well-intentioned, but as the program progressed, I realized that it was geared to helping me develop strategies to cope with a hierarchical, top-down environment. And for me, this was a recipe for burnout and not a productive way forward. With the encouragement of colleagues and friends and through personal study and reflection, I chose a different path and I'm going to tell you about that today. And this is a recipe and this is straightforward and this is simple. And now I know how to bust through this and I want you to want to share that with you. So in um, 1990, Mihai uh, Mihai wrote a book on the psychology of optimal experience. And he was the one who described flow as a situation when your challenges match your skills. You could be a four-year-old or a four-month-old or a six-year-old or a six-month-old, and the toys you're given to play with are meant to match your skills so you can be in this state of flow, of happiness and joy. And basically, I have spent almost my whole life with this whole square just totally pink. And that's how I innovated nerve transfers, and that's how I ended up with all of these papers and grants. It was because I just attracted people to work with me who were marvelous, and everything I touched turned to wonderful. It came as a surprise when I dipped down into the depths of this sticky, dark place, and now I realize that that just didn't happen to me. It happened for me. I needed to stay there, apparently, for a long time before I got enough of it to realize a way forward. I am so proud to present this to you today, and I'm happy. I'm just grateful. The problem for me was living in that peace and calm and happiness and joy for my whole life, I did not have the skills to meet the challenges of and the environment I perceived I was working in. It was completely foreign to me. I didn't know what to do. I just stayed where I was told to stay, down there. And then I was kind of isolated. And so I had talents, but I wasn't allowed to use my talents. So then I was depressed. I hope this plays. This is how it rolls now. This is our operating room. This is Alexandra, one of our residents. Timeout. I can do the timeout. This is a timeout. Uh, so they were here to take care of Jane Doe. She's been having 
Some significant issues with bilateral Bergstrom knees, but most notably in her left of Bergstrom knee recently after undergoing endoscopic carpal tunnel and cubital tunnel release. So we're here to revise her cubital tunnel release and get ulnar nerve transposition. Um, so today our focus should be solely on her in this room, um, giving her the best care possible. There's a lot going on in the outside world and there's a lot going on in everyone's personal lives, but let's try to put those things aside to put all of our focus on taking care of her and giving her the best care possible. Um, but in doing so, we also want to make sure that we are treating each other and everyone in this room with dignity and respect. So um, if you ever feel like you've had a macroaggression or a microaggression against you in this room, either bring it up in the moment or bring it up with someone in this room um, after the case. We don't want to leave here with any negative emotions about the day. So and let's try to keep you know, HR out of it and have a great day. So I'm Alexander. I'm one of the residents. I'm Robert Hurd, CXT. Oh. Susan Surgeon. Justin CRA in the room. And most most important. Tammy the circulator. So that's how we start our day. First case, professional timeout. Here for the patient, but here for us. Thanks for coming. We're all high professionals. But we're humans, and so we can drop down to the micro macro. But we'll help each other out with that so we can grow and learn something. We'll come back up to working with each other, working with each other, totally focused on our mission, what we're doing, revising this wicked mean ulnar nerve, and we'll do it together, and we'll help the patient. That's how we start our day. It's wonderful, and we do slip, but we help each other get up. So I'm an expert in paradigm shifting. I am. It's not nice when it happens. I have another talk on there's no crying in innovation because there's lots of crying in innovation. I've come back from meetings weeping with these ideas that I have that just don't quite land yet, ideas before their time. And I've been involved, um, as you said, Sharon, from shifting from nerve grafting to nerve transfers to bring nerves close to target for results that are just amazing. I've studied this. I studied it just like I studied myself when I found myself in this pickle. Um, I've studied this, and I know what happens when you have a paradigm shift. And I know when it will happen. I'll share that with you. So Thomas Kuhn from MIT published this in 1962. The structure of scientific revolutions. So uh, give me a revolution. And um, he talked about what happens when there's a paradigm shift. There's a break in the tradition. Um, there's a, a failure of existing uh, rules. The discipline is put into a state of crisis. And um, there's uh, intellectual battle. And then he quoted Max Planck uh, from saying, when a new scientific truth um, does um, not, you don't get a new truth by, um, convincing others, you get it by get it, getting a new generation, and in fact, you might have to wait for the old generation to die to have something new come in to play. So he has his uh, Kuhn cycle, and you can see that there's a normal situation over at, at uh, three o'clock, and then there's a model drift at six, and then you start to get controversy, uncertainty, and criticism. Expect it, it will happen. Um, and then there's, uh, the model goes into crisis, and then you get the paradigm shift. And when does this happen? 
Um, Everett uh, Rogers published in the same year, 1962, the Diffusion of Innovations, and he described this group of innovators as 2.5%, early adopters of a new idea, like, let's change the culture of surgery, why not? Well, we need some early adopters. We need apparently 13.5% of the group to agree with that. And then the early majorities, the late majorities, and of course the 16%, which are the holdout as the laggards. Roger's parabola and the S-curve, and this was picked up, this concept was picked up by um, Malcolm Gladwell in the book, The Tipping Point. So, there are, I showed you those talks by these leaders in the past, and um, they all are asking for the same thing, they want to change. It's, it's, it's toxic and it's unnecessary. And the tipping point is when you get to 15 to 20%. You get to 15 to 20%, you can't stop it, you don't get there, you can't start it. It's an idea before it's time. So I suggest that we are at the tipping point now. We're ready for this paradigm shift. If you look at the, um, and here's some data for that. So if you look at the concept of, um, in, in 2012, 60% of, of physicians were their own bosses. They worked in physician-owned practices. 5.6 worked as employees for the hospital. In 2020, 74% of physicians are direct hospital employees. We have a boss, we aren't in control of our situation, we aren't in control of the, of the system. And if you look at the, uh, number, the trend towards unionization in healthcare, we see it's, it's less than 1% in 2009, and it's 35% um, in 2021. We've just seen um, this month the um, healthcare strike by Kaiser. Every healthcare provider in the nation has been facing staffing shortages, fighting burnout. During the great resignation in 21 to 22, more than five million people left their healthcare jobs across the country. Two thirds of healthcare uh, staff are seeing they're burned out and one in five are, um, are quitting. On top of that, there's this recent article, and I know you're all aware of, we discussed it this morning at another panel, and that's the uh, British Journal of Surgery that um, just published um, in uh, last month the fact um, of the situation of sexual harassment and sexual assault, sexual harassment in these women uh, surgeons in, in the UK at 60%, and, and sexual assault someone wants to touch your body, and you say women don't like to be touched in the workplace, and they hug you, sexual assault um, in 30% th in and then rape in a small number. This um, article was picked up by the media within hours. The same day it was published, it was picked up by the media, and um, media across, across North America and Europe at least. There was rapid response. Here's uh, Dr. Hilton uh, saying that bullying happens and sexually inappropriate comments and actions do occur and it's stressful and all I can say is if you want to be a success in this rewarding career, they should just toughen up. Equally quickly, there was response from the Royal College of Surgeons of England and they said basically no, we're, we're not tolerating this behavior and we want to change and we're going to support a change. On top of that, we know burnout. We all know what burnout is. We all know the three domains of exhaustion, about that depersonalization where everyone's just cynical and callous, low personal self-esteem um, and accomplishments and low worth. We know that. 
And we can do a quick, you can do a quick burnout assessment. You don't need to do it every three months. You can do it moment to moment by just looking at this. Are you thriving, calm, hopeful, joyful, confident? Or you are, are you just surviving? And you can do that with these parameters of, of just general well-being in your life and draw, do a VAS scale and see how close you are to your circle. No, it's not coming up. Um, we know what causes it. Chronic imbalance of high-demand jobs and inadequate job resources. That leads to burnout. We have an idea where it came from. Along the bottom on that turquoise line is the number of physicians in the United States of America, which has stayed flat, yet the number of health administrators um, in the country's gone up 3,500%, and this was just like to 2010. And then 2015, we get the EMR, and you'll see the, that year, 2015, as a real point uh, when, um, I just saw my good buddy Nash Nam out there, a real point when things really took off with respect to burnout. We know the consequences, medical errors, um, staff turnover, and depression and suicide. We know it's been going on for a long time, long before COVID. 2010, an article of uh, 700, 905 uh, surgeons um, from, a, from the American College of Surgery. This is a survey that came from our American College of Surgery, and they um, identified burnout as the cause for medical errors. And then the um, article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019 with our residents where 39% were burnt out and 4% have had suicidal uh, ideation. This was all before COVID. And before COVID, there's also this new word that is now becoming quite important, concept of moral distress, moral injury. Moral distress was defined by Jameton, uh, Dr. Jameton in 1984 in, in uh, nurses when a nurse knows the right thing to do but the institutional constraints make it almost impossible to be able to do the right thing. That was the um, distress in 1984. And then the concept of moral injury was in, um, in the uh, 1990s when um, Shay talked about the Vietnam War veterans coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder related to this concept of moral injury. And the term with respect to healthcare started to creep in, and this is an excellent article by Dean and Dean um, and Talbot that uh, talked about that in, in 2004 with moral injury describing the challenge of simultaneously knowing the care our patients want but uh, being unable to deliver it because it's just beyond our control. And then there was COVID. We just got hammered with COVID. If you look at the publications of burnout and um, the physicians, you can see that around 2015, it's take, is that's when it gets that lift and then really soared over COVID. The same um, with our nurses, except you can see the nursing burnout started earlier. The publications on nursing, that, that moral distress described in nurses in 1984, and that lift they got with burnout er earlier. So the nurse, it's no wonder we find our nursing colleagues in much, even more of a crisis situation than us. And then you can do the same thing with this moral injury, um, where we have those dates, 84 and then, and then 90 with Shea, 
and then again, when we start to get near COVID, the moral injury um, goes up. And when we when we look against the, the publications, moral injury and physicians, then there's that it's just coming up now over COVID. So we haven't heard about that before. We've heard about burnout for a while, but now we're going to bring the moral injury, moral distress into the equation as well. And we know the solution. So um, W. Edwards Deming was a business consultant, and he went to Japan after the Second World War to reconfigure the um, businesses that had been decimated in that war. And he says that 85% of the reasons for failure are deficiencies in the system and the process rather than the employee. The role of management is to change the process rather than badgering individuals to do better. In the meantime, while we're waiting for the system and the leaders and the managers to fix this, to change the system, we practice uh, resilience. And this is my definition for resilience. The ability to anticipate, persist, and thrive under conditions of adversity, uncertainty, change, and pressure. So when I get into the next part of my talk and I'm telling you how to do it, you need to anticipate that you will be level two you need to anticipate that, and you need to practice so that you don't stay down for two years like I did. It's been shown that as you increase resilience, and you can build resilience, you can be resilient less and build it, and everyone in this room is, is here because they are resilient, but you can beef up your resilience, and when you do, and you can measure resilience on this Connor Davidson scale, when you, um, when you increase your resilience scores, then those parameters of burnout with the cynicism and the, and the emotional exhaustion and the whole overall burnout come down. So it is important to do this. So uh, my husband, who I've mentioned several times, um, was at that time editor of Annals of Thoracic Surgery, 2018, and he asked Mike Mattis, a thoracic surgeon who is an expert on these things, he's also a professional coach, I'm sure you know him, yeah, um, good friend of ours, he asked him to write a scientific article on resilience, and I think it's because he thought his wife needed some help in building resilience. So um, he did, he, and I saw this article before it was published in 2020. And Mike took his thoughts on how you build resilience and he drilled it down to these uh, six things. And as physicians and surgeons, we know that sleep is important, regardless of the, how we treat it. We know that diet and exercise is important. So I'm not gonna talk about that. But, so this is Annals of Thoracic Surgery 2020 and Mattis is M-A-D-D-A-U-S. Um, he uh, also talked about these other four things. Meditation, practicing gratitude, practicing self-compassion self and connection. So, how many of you have a meditation practice? Wow, great. I think a lot of you have a meditation practice and you don't know it yet. I'll tell you you will. My, my husband says he doesn't have a meditation practice, he does. He notices things. He notices as we're driving to Chicago, he says, what did you think of that? And I said, what? All those sunflowers up and down the medium, I didn't even see them. Driving back from our cottage, we come through this rock granite cut, and he said, did you, did you see that glistening, that glistening, that, sh that shimmering on the, on the rocks? No, didn't see it. So noticing something is putting a pause, so you're not in the past or in the future, you're just in the moment, and that's having a meditative practice. So I'm gonna talk about, um, about um, um, physician uh, burnout, and then show you what happens when you do physician with mindfulness. It dwarfs it. There's got to be something about physicians and mindfulness when we see this uptick 
of burnout around 2015 skyrocketing over COVID, and then you see the same lift with mindfulness. So what is meditation and mindfulness? This is what it is. It's creating an awareness in the moment. 70% of our thoughts are the same thoughts day after day, and they're about things that happened in the past and things that might happen in the future. Sometimes I'll take scenarios from the past, throw it into the future, and imagine the same thing happening in the future. It's ridiculous. So mindfulness or meditation is awareness in the moment so that you can put a pause on your crazy head, and then you can make a conscious choice as to how you want to show up. It's not just your typical stimulus response, default response. When you're in the moment, you're not needing, you're not a needy, egotistical being, and you're not doing, helping patients, doing whatever. You are just being. And people talk about well-being. That slide um, of Colin West with the white um, paper on wellness and well-being. So if you are being a lot, you're going to have a very deep well of well-being. But if you're a very needy person, me, 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 um, ego, 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 um, or doing, then that's what you're doing. You're, you're needing or you're doing and you're not getting any being. There are three types of um, meditation practices. I'm, would it be okay if I took you through a quick practice? Okay, great. Um, so what you do is you uh, have your feet flat on the floor have your hands on your thighs, lower your eyes, close your eyes, or keep them open, open softly, and then you sit up dignified. John Kabat-Zinn says, sit up dignified. Stack your nervous system on top of each other so the cerebral spinal fluid is just going straight up and down, no impediment. And then put your awareness on your thoughts. And notice that you, whoever that is, is watching your thoughts. Who's watching your thoughts is the watcher of your crazy thoughts. Notice your thoughts, but don't become attached to them. Just let them go. No judgment. And now take your awareness and put your awareness on what you're listening to, what you're hearing. So we can move our awareness. We can control our awareness. Put it on what we're hearing. Does it sound different in one ear to the other? Hear a ding of a phone. Another ding, the, the air conditioning or the heating in the room. Maybe your breath or something shuffling. Now take your awareness onto your breath. You can put your hand on your belly and your hand on your chest. And just take a deep breath in and your belly expands, and then exhale, and your belly drops. And then notice on the inhale that your belly expands, and then a little bit after that, your chest lifts. And on the exhale, your chest falls, and then your belly falls. And then maybe put your hands back on your, on your thigh, and then breathe in. Imagine you're breathing from the base of your spine all the way up your spine to the top of your head. And then you can pause at the top of your head. 
And then you can come down like an elevator on the exhale, all the way down, all the way down your spinal cord, down to your pelvis again, and then inhale slowly up to the top of your head. And pause at the top between the inhale and the exhale. What a sweet spot that is. And then exhale down. And just let that cycle of breath go on the inhale, bottom of spine, all the way up to the top of your head, and then come all the way down on the exhale. And then imagine expanding that breath so it's coming from the ground up through your feet, up your legs, up your body, up your chest, top of head, and then going straight down from the top of your head all the way down to your feet. And let that breath cycle. Imagine it cycling all through you. Inhale and then exhale. This giant cycle of breath from Mother Earth all the way up to the heavens and then all the way back down again. And then imagine that breath getting bigger so that you're becoming this breathing machine. And that breathing machine is letting your skin just become like this balloon and you're breathing and you're creating this massive space in between all your molecules and it's just this massive breathing balloon of space and then that fills the room and it fills Boston and it fills Massachusetts and North America and beyond and then gather your molecules back into you again and then come back and open your eyes. You don't feel worse. <laughs> the breath um, is the, the, a place you can go to to get centered. I did this before I came in here today. I just sat out there and I breathed. On the inhale, my husband has taught me this, on the inhale there's a massive amount of energy effort, but on the exhale there is no energy. It just happens. The inhale is sympathetic nervous system. I'm under attack, fight or flight, freeze. And the exhale is rest and relaxation. And we know that. We know the sympathetic chain. We know the vagus, the vagabond nerve that goes through your body, that calms things down. And we know that we have too much sympathetic. Then you start to get hypertension, irritable bowel disease, issues with your chest. You get those stress-related illnesses. So. The trick is, the breath is always there. You can be like Alec and notice bugs and trees and rocks and flowers, but what if you don't have a bug, a tree, a rock and flower? You've got your breath with you all the time. This book by James Nestor is a real winner, and it talks about methods for increasing the parasympathetic and decreasing the sympathetic. So the special ops will do inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight, and as they're preparing to do something, they're doing this breath so that they can calm themselves down to make an important decision in a situation of crisis. Um, spies will do, on the, when they're listening to the question, they'll be inhaling, sympathetic, sympathetic, fight, flight, freeze. And then when they're answering, they'll be doing the parasympathetic on the exhale. No, I had no idea about that, none at all. So all of these types of breathing, or, or all these types of meditations, reduce stress. And there are studies to show that they decrease cortisol um, measurements as well. And the last one is loving kindness. And this is a very powerful, powerful prayer. So loving kindness, building self-compassion, and that's one of the things that Mike Mattis said. May you be free of pain and suffering. May you be free of fear and anxiety. 
May you find peace and calm, and may you find happiness and joy. So you say those words to yourself, um, and the way you started this practice is you think of someone who loves you and who you love. And on the inhale, you, th you say their name. Granny Pearl, may you be free of pain and suffering. May you be free of fear and anxiety on the exhale. On the inhale, may you find peace and calm. And on the exhale, may you find uh, joy and happiness. And it's wonderful. It just fills you. It's like love coming in and the big cycle of love between the person that loves you and who you love. That's, the, that's how they get you started. And the next thing, they, you do it for yourself. And when I did this, I thought, this is a complete waste of time. This is ridiculous. I do this all the time for myself. It's, oh my gosh, Susan. May you, may you be free of pain and suffering and fear and anxiety. May you have some happiness and joy and peace and calm. Um, then, you do, and I do it for my, every night I do it for myself, and every night I do it for my grandchildren. I'll lump them all together. If someone's particularly suffering and got cut from the basketball team, I'll do it for Karen. Um, and anyone, anyone that is in a situation, we can do this, then you do it for a neutral person. Walking through the hospital, you get lots of opportunities to see people that are not happy. And you can tell someone's energy. Just, just from going by them. And then this is the one that I, that I really had to work on, and it's very powerful. Then you do that for that very disagreeable person. And when you do that, it's amazing. This, don't laugh, I know, but you, do, try, you try it. Try the others first. Go with your grandchildren first. Um, but you can try it, and it's just really powerful. You're seeing that other person as someone who is struggling, who has been brought up in different ways, with different ideas, who has different assumptions, who is struggling, and you show compassion for them. And when you do that, it's liberating. It's freeing. It's wonderful. It's why I can stand up here today and talk to you. So when I did this coaching, I, I got the, this coaching. I loved it. It saved my life. And then I wanted to become a certified coach in that. And I'm certified in many domains of, of high performance in, in leadership and well-being and all, all of that. So the coaching is different from mentoring. Mentoring, we know something you don't know, we tell you. But this is, you may be the expert of the process, but the person that you're coaching is the expert. And you tie the inner purpose, why we went into this to serve other people, with, this, with these goals that you want to achieve. There are um, six things that can either build you up or take you down. For us, if we lose a sense of purpose or if we become emotionally exhausted, that's not good for us. Um, but if you get your purpose back, and if you're not emotionally, mentally, or physically exhausted, then they're very potentiating for performance. And then these 10 things you practice, you memorize this and you practice. The first is awareness. Awareness in the moment. Then acceptance, no struggling, no resisting. Someone is mean to you, you don't say, how dare you do that? How can you do that to me? You don't do that. I did that. You don't do that. You accept it. And when you're accepting it, you're um, moving up. You're aware that this is a bad thing, situation. You don't like it. Then you make a conscious choice as to how you want to show up. You trust this process that I'm going to tell you about. And you are three things, fearless, confident, and authentic. For the women in this audience, you spend a lot of time wondering what you should do to look like, act like a guy. If you're assertive, it's aggressive. They do the same thing, they're assertive, you do that, you're aggressive. It's, it's just that you're an actress. No wonder we're exhausted. You're present in the moment, like we talked about. You're looking for connection with other people, and you recognize that you've got 100% energy, and there's massive energy. So Bruce Schneider started this IPEC. Um, and he, his work um, saved me, literally 
physically and emotionally, and save me and my, and my family. Um, there's seven levels that he describes of energy, and the first two are the negative sympathetic overdrive, fight, flight, freeze. So I lose is one. I lose, but you win is two, level two. This is all ego, I, me, I, I, I. Whenever we're thinking I, I don't want to do this, should I have to, why do I have to, that's all ego. It's very needy, what a needy person I am. The level three is coping, it's take a breath. Whew, I don't like that level one and two. And I'm fine. When people say, how are you doing? Okay, they're level three. Fine, okay. It is what it is, that's level three. Level four is our job, you win, patient wins. Like Alexander saying, we're here for our patient today. We're good at that, we are solid level fours. Win-win is um, peace and calm, no judgment, just opportunities. The wheels come off a bit, man, what can we learn from this? We wonder why that happened. It's ideas everywhere. It's how you have over five or 600 present papers because you can't stop these ideas because it's peaceful and calm up there at six or at five. Level six is happiness and joy, and that's connecting with others. Level six is wisdom and genius. We're all smart, but you're not smart when you're needy. Or you're smart when you're needy, fine, but you're not a genius and you're not wise. So level six is wisdom and happiness and joy, and it's innovation and creation, because you're doing it with other people. And level seven is just being in the flow. So when you're at that high level, your performance is high. When you're down here at one and two, it's all judgment and stress attached to outcome. Every one of us got here because somebody else didn't get the position in medical school or a surgical program or wherever. So we have all very good at attached to outcome, judgment and stress, me, me, me. But there's no performance there. So you get to a stage in your career and you want performance, then that's the way to do that. You get up in that flow that Mihai Cheek sent Mihai talked about in 1990. Um, the neurotransmitters, so I've looked into this, everybody knows adrenaline and cortisol down in the low level of um, I win, you lose, fight, flight, freeze. But the, but the neurotransmitters for the other levels are well known. So happiness and joy is oxytocin. And then serotonin, peace and calm, that's how they treat anxiety. Endorphins, GABA, dopamine. Boy, you're going to get higher performance with your team if they're at that level, if you've got everybody cynical and burnt out and angry and mean and looking out for themselves. There's not much performance there. So if our system wants us to perform, then they want us to be in those high levels. So each of those levels has a thought that drives an emotion that drives an action. And the low thought is, um, you know, I'm a victim, and therefore I feel terrible, fear and anxiety, I'm shamed, and I'll go hide out, did that. Um, or I'm angry, binary, yes or no, black and white, entitlement. Level, th level three is letting go of those resentments, accepting it, immediately breathing, accepting it. Level four is concern for our patients and the action service for our patients. Level five is peace and calm. And that's where we have that teaching at level two is pimping. Teaching at level five is, wow, I hope you don't know that because I want to tell you. And then when we both don't know, then that's the next idea for the next project. That's the M&Ms, where you have a level five M&M. What can we learn from this? Not you're a bad surgeon. Level six is this synergy, working with others. That's the joy and happiness. And that's where innovation and co-creation was. So you want your team being innovating, then boy, they don't do it on level one and two. 
Um, and then the level five, the level seven is just up there where you're in the flow, time stands still, you, do, you put your head down, you lift your head up, four hours later you did that operation, you don't remember, time just didn't happen. That's when you're really in that flow and that's where we are. So great, how do we build that? How do we go from the old thought to the new thought? It's that yellow space there, how do we create that space? That is through the emotions. This is how to build emotional intelligence. Women are told they're too emotional. I had someone say, There's somebody over here is very emotional. Women are told, um, men are told not to have emotions. We're all told to do better and do well, and we interpret that as, is it good enough yet? Um, and men are told um, not to have emotions, and women are told to be afraid. So no wonder we're not fearless. We need to be fearless, confident, and authentic. Hard to do that, given where we've come from. So how do you make that new thought happen? You've, you memorize that list, and how do you get there? You create a space. So Viktor Frankl said, between the stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to change, choose our response. Make a conscious choice in that space. In our response is our growth and our freedom, 1946. So how do we make that space? Well, we talked about it. As soon as you feel something not okay in your body, even before you name an emotion, I just took a breath, yeah. You get to the level three, <laughs> you take a breath. And then you take as many breaths as you need in order to decide what conscious choice is gonna be. And maybe it's gonna be table this situation. This is really rugged, I didn't know that I was behaving this way and no one liked me at all in anything I do. I need to table this, I'll come back. You, you, you create the space. Pima Chodron, Buddhist monk, said that you can create this space in three breaths. Inhale for five, exhale for five. So, you know, take 30 seconds. And that lech gives you the space to make a choice, like Viktor Frankl said. Coaching gets into why you're doing this so you can make that choice, that, that happen faster. So remember I told you about um, aware, accept, conscious, choice, trust. So we can call this act, so aware, when something level one and two happens, you feel it. You don't, you don't have to explain it, you feel it. And you immediately accept it. You don't resist it, you don't fight it, you just accept it and you start breathing. And then you make a conscious choice, okay? It can be um, just breathe, stay in breathing. It can be compassion for yourself. I like to go to peace and calm. I like to say I want some peace and calm here because I know that's an opportunity. I know there's no failure. It's just something I'm supposed to learn here. What am I supposed to learn? And then you can trust the system and then you can get back all your happiness and joy and start your innovation and lead your life. So this is us. We give our level four to our patients. But you know, during COVID and even now, we're exhausted. We're just exhausted and that leads to burnout. So what do we do? Then we can give ourselves some loving compassion. We know how to do that for our patients. We can practice it. Anything you want to do, 10,000 hour rule, Anders Ericsson, you practice, you practice this. And then you can go to that peace and calm. So you calm yourself down by changing your mental perception. And then when you need to, well, okay, well, let's have some innovation here um, and connection with other people. And then you start to get being. And then when you're mission-focused, purpose-driven, with meaning and passion in your life, then you're up at that level of well-being. And your sense of well-being lives there. And you have to be there. We bounce between all of those levels all the time. I mean, have you been in a good space, feeling very level uh, five and six, and then someone comes in and all of a sudden, bang, you're level two and you sink? 
happens all, I, I, when I first heard that, it's like, yes, that's me all the time. So you take your breaths, calm yourself down, make a conscious choice, peace and calm, something to learn here. Wonder what's to learn here. Practice that self-compassion. So on the level energies, this, that self-compassion, that's a Buddhist um, 2,500 years old poem to practice. So may I be free of fear and, and suffering. May I be free of, of um, pain and suffering, fear and anxiety. That's may I not have this level one, two going in my head. May I have compassion for others and myself. I want some level four. May I find peace and calm. That's level five. May I find happiness and joy, and that's level six. When we look at that professional timeout, we say, let's level for our patient, compassion for our patient, but we matter too, some peace and calm, win-win for us. But we can maybe micro-macro-aggression in the OR, that can happen, and we can call each other out. I have residents that will say, level, um, Dr. McKinnon, I think you just level two me. Okay, sorry about that. They like doing that. <laughs> They're watching for that. Um, and then, then let's uh, work together, connection, and have a great day, and be at our high-performance team that we are. So as I close, it's our choice. Uh, do we want to stay in that muck, or do we want to move towards the sunshine? You can think of things as traumatic, or you can think of them as an opportunity to change. And this is a quote um, from... Uh, Heraclitus from 500 BC, the content of your character is your choice. Day by day, you can choose. Um, and uh, I can't hardly read this from here, but, and what you think and what you do is who you become. That's very similar to Frankel's uh, quote as well. So it's possible for us to do that. We can change our perception. And on top of that, we have this hierarchy of surgery and hierarchy and administration in the meantime, and here we are taking that oath, putting that white coat on, and then bang, we get hammered. The system has a problem. Too much ask, and asking for things that are exhausting for us. And it's not our contract with our patients and, and, and our society to look after patients. It's a contract to make money off our patients, and it's depressing. And that leads to, Moral distress, moral injury, and burnout. And I think the time is right. I think we are, we are at 15% of people. Well, we have a nice room here. We're, we're like over the top with percentage of people who want to change. But what we need is to change the system and change the culture of the system. And we need to, us, we need to continue to build our resilience and we need to change our culture as well. So the system needs to get out of that dark spot. We need to get out of that dark spot. And we need to reclaim our joy, our mission, our passion. And we can do it. And this college can do it. And I know just like the Royal College of Surgeons of England, American College of Surgery wants to do that too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at FACS. 
www.thepurpose.org. 